Tonight we are going to be in Acts chapter 13. We'll pick it up in verse uh, 14. But the last time we were together, we, uh, we, we, uh, Paul and Barnabas had gone to the island of Cyprus and they had spread the gospel there and they'd had the encounter with Elimus, the, uh, the sorcerer that was uh, tricking the governor of the, of the island there. And then they moved up to uh, to, to Perga, and we kind of left off there, and that was where it was in, it was in Perga, that when they left the city of Paphos on the island of Cyprus, uh, Paul and his companions sailed north and arrived at the city of Perga, and it was there that, you remember we talked about John Mark, how he left the team ab- abruptly and returned to Jerusalem, and we talked about how later on there was reconciliation that came through that, but that's where we're going to pick it up, and we're in, in Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. So they've landed at the city of Perga, sailed up from the island of Cyprus, and it says there, from Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath day they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. So they landed in the city of Perga, that was this port city uh, in, in kind of south-central modern-day Turkey, right there on the Mediterranean coast. And, and Paul and Barnabas travel 160 miles on a dangerous mountain road to an elevation of 3,600 feet at Antioch near Pisidia on the right bank of the, of the river Antios. Now, we, we read these stories about these travels, and we, we forget. To us, we say, we read they travel from Perga to Pisidia and Antioch. This sounds, sounds like no big, big deal, but I said those last statistics because you need to understand this was, this was a, a long, hard, arduous journey through a very treacherous, treacherous area, an area that, that was well known for, you know, uh, for, for bandits and, and for, for uh, people of ill repute you know, to, to be traveling upon. And, and uh, you know, later on, Paul talks about, he goes through a litany of things that he had suffered for the cause of Christ. And I can't help but think that maybe it was, this was part of that remembering that he had there because uh, this was probably, out of all of his travels, one of the most difficult journeys, parts of the journey that he ever had to, had to travel as he went up there up to the city, uh, the city of Antioch. Now, remember, I told you a few weeks ago, there were two different Antiochs. And, uh, and the church in, the, in Antioch of Syria was the church that sent Paul and Barnabas out. So this is not the same Antioch. Uh, that Antioch is, is uh, it, it was in Syria. It's very close to, to modern-day Syria. It, might, it actually might be in modern-day Turkey, but, it, but it's over there on the eastern side. And this was more south-central uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, where they were uh, living now or where they had arrived now. And, and this Antioch, it was a, it was a hub of good roads and trade, and it, it had become a sizable city in the first century. By the time Paul arrived there, it was probably around 50,000 people in population, so a little more than four times the size of Marion, Arkansas. And, uh, and what had happened to, to Romanize the area, because you know Rome, they took control, but they wanted to assert their culture more and more and their dominance in different areas, uh, the Emperor Augustus had established several colonist cities, and this was one of them, and, and, he, and it became a very popular place for people again to move into, and he linked all of these colonist cities with an east-west highway that stretched all the way across modern-day Turkey, all the way down to the Euphrates River, which is down you know, uh, near India and, and Iraq, uh, Iran, that area of the, nation, of the world today. So, and then we know that according to Josephus, Jewish historian, that around 200 BC, there were 2,000 Jewish families that were relocated to this area. Uh, And that was something the Roman Empire often did. They would move groups of people to different places because it helped kind of keep the rebellion down and and, and because people were transplanted. And, And so we read this, and the fact that there is still a synagogue there tells us that, that many of them still remain there by the, by the time of Paul. So Paul arrives in the city of Antioch, and as usual, he, first he goes to the synagogue. And, and in a synagogue service, 
There were certain things that happened every service. First, the Shema would be recited. That's from Exodus chapter 6, verse 4. It really goes a little bit longer than that. But this is something the Jews would recite and repeat uh, multiple times every day. And it's where, where he, Deuteronomy 6, 4, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, uh, the Lord is one. And so they would, they would uh, repeat the, the Shema together. And then they, then they would, uh, there certain prayers would be prayed and they would sp- speak those prayers. That would be followed by a reading from the law, somewhere from Genesis to through Deuteronomy. And then they would read something from the prophets, which that was intended to illustrate what they had just read from the, from the law. Then they would have a sermon. And the synagogue rulers uh, would de- decide who was to lead the service and who was to give a sermon. And a different person uh, would, would often be chosen to lead the service every week. And since it was customary, we talked about this the last time, for the, it was customary for the synagogue leader to invite visiting rabbis to speak. Now, they would have been really excited here because this is a, this is a long way from Jerusalem. Uh, probably very few of the Jews there had ever gone all the way to Jerusalem for things like the Passover feast and that sort of thing because it was a very, very long, very difficult journey. And because of that, it was very unusual for, for Jewish rabbis and teachers to, be, to make their way to Antioch of Pisidia. So they were really excited when Paul and Barnabas shows up and they probably found out that Paul had been trained at the feet of Gamaliel, you know, one of the most famous teachers of the day. And they're thinking, we can't believe we got this guy here. And, and so it was already their custom to invite a visiting rabbi to speak, but they were really excited with Paul and Barnabas. So, so they did that. They, they were probably sitting on the back row because it said they sent word to them. So, you know, just picture in my mind, you know, some famous preacher walks in, sits on the back row, and I, I write out a note and get an usher and they take it back there and say, hey, would you speak today? And so they get the word and Paul says, sure, I'll do that. That's what he was waiting for. That's, that's why he went there. And so Paul then, then he stood up and he waved his, hands, his hand for silence and, uh, and asked the Israelites, and he, and, the, and he specifically mentions the God-fearing Gentiles to listen. Remember, uh, there, were, there were three groups there, the, the Jews by birth, there were those that were proselytes, people who had gone through, who had said, I'm going to follow uh, the, the God of Judah, the God of Israel, and, and, and follow the, the religion of Judaism. And they went through the process of circumcision and all the rites and baptism that went through there. Then the third group was Gentiles who were called God-fearing Gentiles who were interested in this, in this religion, interested in this God, but they had not made the decision to commit to circumcision. And baptism and those sort of things. And it's already unusual for Paul to, in, in this address, because it was the, the God-fearing Gentiles were rarely acknowledged in the synagogue setting. So Paul's already kind of breaking the mold here because he's, he's acknowledging that they're there, and, 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 which is, you would, you know, in retrospect, looking at it, you realize that he is already understanding that in, in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, uh, that, that they're all the same before God. And so he's already recognizing them, and he, and he asked the, the Israelites and the God-fearing Gentiles to listen. And, uh, um, and we mentioned a few weeks ago uh, that there were many Gentiles who, who were tired of the immorality and idolatry of heathen religion. They were hungry for something better and were, they were attracted to the synagogues and to, to the worship of the one true God who, unlike their pagan gods, identified himself as holy. So Paul begins a sermon. Now, what we're going to do tonight, I'm not going to read the, the entire sermon. It's very lengthy, but for the sake of time, uh, you can read that at home. We're just going to talk about it here and, and walk through his sermon and sem- summarize it and that sort of thing. Uh, but, but his sermon, it, it, this is the longest uh, sermon uh, that's recorded by Luke in the book of Acts for Paul. Uh, and, and even this that he records, he pro- it's, it's not a word-for-word recording of what Paul said. It's more of a summary, an outline of what he, what he was preaching there. And so it, it went even longer than what it shows here. We do know Paul, he could really preach some long sermons. There was later in the book of Acts, we'll see one time he was preaching to these believers 
and he preached all night long. So, he preached so long, in fact, that a young man who was sitting in a window uh, fell, out of the, fell asleep and fell out of the window and it killed him. And, and that makes me feel so good because I have never killed anybody with my preaching. <laughs> I, I, as far as I know, it never happened. Uh, but we'll get to that another time. But um, Luke, what he does here, uh, this is the only time he really gives detail about a sermon inside of a synagogue. So what he's doing is, he is he, something he often did, he's, he's showing us the type of sermon that Paul would preach when he would go to a synagogue. So it's very likely this is very similar to what he said every time he went into a synagogue for the first time uh, to, to share Jesus. Uh, but we don't get any more detail after this. So as Paul began, he, he, you know, he courteously, courteously addressed both the Jews and the Gentiles in the audience. And, he, and it's interesting, again, he, he recognized them both as brothers and he kept them both in mind throughout the whole sermon. And the first part of the sermon reviews the history of Israel. And it's, it's kind of like Stephen. You remember Stephen when he was, uh, when he was put on trial? And you remember how he, he, his, uh, he started talking about the history of Israel? And he, he, when he did it, he was talking about how God kept sending people and the Israelites kept rejecting them and, and, and culminating the fact that he finally even sent his son and they still rejected him. Well, Paul goes through the history of Israel, but he, he does it a little different way. He starts with God's choice of Israel and the deliverance of the of Israelites from Egypt and, and leads all the way up to God's choice of David. And, and while he's doing this, the content and the literary form, they were all very familiar to his audience. And, and as they're listening, what they're realizing, this man knows his scripture. But unlike Stephen, Paul did not emphasize Israel's failures. Rather, what he did, he spoke of God's choosing for his own purpose, for his own service, and, and exalting the Israelites uh, during their time as foreigners in Egypt. And God confirmed this choice by le- leading them out of Egypt with mighty power. And then Paul mentions that God endured their conduct for 40 years during the wilderness. Then, he, then Joshua's conquest of the promised land and the time of the judges are quickly summarized, as is the reign of King Saul. And in just a very few sentences, I mean two or three verses there, he covers... I mean, you talk about a, a skimming over a history lesson. He covers about 450 years of history with just a few lines. And, and because that's not what he's trying to get to. He's actually trying to set this up and, co- and, and cover this early Jewish history to get to David as king of Israel. And the climax of this historical account is reached when Paul says, God bore witness to David as a man after his own heart who would do everything he wanted him to do. Now, I want you to realize this. Uh, the desire and the willingness to do what God wanted, that's the thing that made David a man after God's own heart. Because we all know David, you know, uh, was not perfect. We just did a study of David and we, we know he had a lot of shortcomings, a lot of failures in his lifetime. So it wasn't that he was perfect that made him a man after God's own heart. It's that even in the midst of all those failures, he still had a heart that said, I want to get things right with God. I want to be a man who does what God says. And that was his desire. Now, when he gets to David, all the people there in in the synagogue, they know God's promise to David, that God promised that, that, uh, that, that the throne would not pass from his family. They, they know the prophecies that God would raise up a, a greater seed to David. And they know the prophecy that he would give David's throne to the one to whom it rightful, rightfully belonged. And in this way, Paul brings all this up and he declares that God has fulfilled his promise. He's saying, he brings them up to this point very, very quickly. Of course, he may have given more details because Luke is uh, giving an overview of what he said. But he brings them to this point very quickly. And he says, you know, everybody knows that God, uh, God promised David that he would raise up somebody who would sit on the throne forever. And Paul is there to tell him he has done it. And he has raised up a savior for Israel. And his name is Jesus. Then he goes on and he he identified Jesus as having been recognized uh, by John the Baptist as the one to come. Now this is interesting. Think about this. 
These are people that are living in Antioch, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from, from Israel. And yet, Paul does not have to explain to them who John the Baptist was. So the word about John the Baptist has, has already reached them. He hasn't he had to explain anything. His ministry was well known throughout the Jewish world. And they also, it was well known uh, about his denial of being the one to come. Because you remember John the Baptist, they said, are you the Messiah? Are you the one to come? And he said, no, 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 that's not me. In fact, he, he, said, he said, I'm not even worthy to, to take his sandals off of his feet. And, uh, and that was important. Because they, they uh, uh, regarded John as a prophet from God, as the one who was going before, coming before this, the Messiah. And to, for John to say that he was not worthy to take off the sandals of the one to come, which was a, a, the most menial service. That was something that the lowest servant in a household would do. That tells them how far above, uh, above him that, that John considered Jesus. So after dealing with Israel's history, in the second part of the sermon, Paul deals with the death and the resurrection of Jesus and with the witness of the apostles and as well as the witness of the scriptures. And, and then Paul shows that the death of Jesus was the fulfillment of God's prophetic word. He makes a point that, that God ordained it, that God planned it. It was God's idea and, and it was the Jeru people living in Jerusalem and the rulers and the religious leaders of the day that they carried out. God planned it, but they carried it out. Now, Paul recognizes in this sermon that they did it because they were ignorant of Jesus. And, and they were ignorant of the voices of the prophets that were read every Sabbath in their synagogues. And by doing that, Paul reminded his audience, and he reminds us of this as well, of a very, very sobering fact. I want you to hear this. This is really important. It is possible to read the truth, hear the truth preached every, every week, even see the truth, and still miss it. And still miss it. This is what happened to the Jews in, in, uh, in Jesus' day. Uh, they had been waiting for the Messiah. They had been saying the Messiah is coming. He came right into their midst. He was right there among them. And not only did they not recognize him, they condemned him and put him to death. Jesus warned of this tendency to be spiritually deaf. In Matthew 13, he said, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will ever, you'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. He's saying, listen, they have hardened their hearts. There's an unwillingness to believe. Unwillingness to accept the truth when it's standing right in front of them. Another place, I find this really sobering, especially with what I do for a living. Uh, because this is what he said in John 5, 39 and 40. He's speaking to the, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and, and, uh, and this is what he said to them. He said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. And Jesus said, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. That, that is really a sobering verse right there. In other words, he's saying it is possible to study the scripture. It is possible to press in, even, even with a, a potentially a sincere heart in it. And it's possible to get so caught up in all the little details like the Pharisees did in trying to keep everything just right and have our list of do's and don'ts and all these things. It's possible to do that and miss Jesus. 
And, and the, what's scary to me is the Greek word that Luke uses in this passage, it's, it's used of some, that sometimes implies willful ignorance or a deliberate ignoring of the truth. You know, it's that moment, and we've all had moments like this. Uh, tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but we've all had these moments where, where we read something in Scripture and there's that little, that little nagging little voice back in the corner of our mind where the Holy Spirit is saying, pay attention to this, I'm trying to talk to you here, I'm trying to deal with something in your life, and, it's, and, we, and we don't want to deal with that thing. Anybody ever been there where you just, you know, he's, he's like, he's just hammering away, or uh, maybe he's not even hammering, maybe it's just that still, small, whispering voice, and so he's just talking to us and dealing with us, and, and we don't want to. And that's what happened to the Pharisees. Here's the thing we got to remember. If it happened to them, we have to understand that unless we guard our hearts, it can't happen to us. Proverbs says, guard your heart, for out of it flow the wellsprings of life. And, and we've got to understand that it's, it's not about, you know, it's not about our list of things. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Now, does that mean, you know, that we don't, uh, you know, uh, look at holiness and say, oh, I want to live a holy life? No, of course not. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that when he is dealing with this, it is very easy to ignore that voice and to be willfully ignorant and deliberately ignore the truth. And as we do that, that's the kind of thing that it's like an infection that grows and festers and it becomes easier to ignore him on bigger things and then it becomes easier to ignore him on even bigger things and next thing you know you're you're falling away from God and you're looking at your life and you're saying how did I get here well it started started in with this with the small things and since these people in Jerusalem they knew the prophecies there's no doubt it was willful ignorance that was meant here. Paul says that they found no proper ground for a death sentence on Jesus, yet they asked Pilate to have him executed. It just boils down to just flat out murder. But after the prophecies of Christ's death were fulfilled, they took him from, the, from that tree and they laid him in a tomb. And then we're, and then we're told again, the contrast between how they treated him and how God treated him because then God raised him from the dead. And his disciples who traveled with him to Jerusalem, they were witnesses of this and they were with him for many days. And so Paul is explaining to them, listen, this is not just some idea that I made up. We have witnesses. He appeared to 500 people at one time. And I've heard people say, well, it was just a mass hallucination. That does not exist. You can have 500 people all having hallucinations at the same time, but they're not all going to say to see the same thing. And so he was trying to make the point, you know, this is not just something I'm telling you that there are witnesses and there are physical witnesses. And he was bringing them this good news. And the good news was that God's promise to the Old Testament fathers was now being fulfilled for their children by God's raising Jesus from the dead. And he, and he confirmed this by quoting Psalm 270, he said, uh, he, where it says, He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. And that phrase, today I have become your father, means I'm declaring this day that I'm your father. It's, it's, a, it's a formulaic phrase. And it was used in those days of one who was already a king's son. Uh, most commentators believe that it was a formula by which a king made a public declaration that he was raising his son to the throne and he expected him to then share it as an associate and an equal. So, so if a king uh, was, was ready to uh, bring his son up to help him rule and he was going to put him on a throne with him, the king would say, uh, today this is my son and I am his father. He was already his son. He was already his father, but by saying that specific phrase, it was a means to communicate to the rest of the kingdom this is, is also, you are to look at him as one of your rulers. He's sitting on the throne with me. And so in this context, uh, w- when you read this in the psalm, it refers to Jesus being declared by God to be his divine son. He's not saying that you weren't my son and now you are. He's saying this is my son and now I'm declaring to the world that, that this is my son. I am his father, which means he's sitting on the throne with me. 
And God did this first at Jesus' baptism. Remember what happened there? What happened when Jesus came out of the water? The Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. And the voice said, what? This is my son. But then Paul is making a point to saying, he made that statement even more unmistakably when he raised Jesus from the dead. And then the final part of his sermon gives a challenge. This, I'll read this part, Acts 13, 38, 39. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. That's, the last line is awesome because there were, there were some things that, you know, the law of Moses, there was nothing to cover that sin. And, and he's saying, listen, I'm now proclaiming to you a forgiveness of sin that is so powerful that it makes no difference what you've done in your past period. It can still be forgiven. He said, by this one who has come, uh, all who believe are justified. Now we use that phrase and, and we use that word. We need to understand clearly what it is because sometimes in modern American English, we use it a little differently because we'll say, well, you know, say that there was uh, somebody shot someone in self-defense and we say, well, they're, they're justified. It was justified in that sense. Well, it kind of means the same thing as that, but we, we tend to make it, uh, take it a little differently. What it really means To be justified, it means to be made righteous. Uh, This is where it's similar to to that idea. It it means that you are acquitted. Uh, The difference is this. Um, it, It means to be treated as if they had never sinned. Now, the difference is this. The person who did that didn't do anything wrong, and so they're declared that that's justified. What What he's talking about here is, Somebody who did something wrong, somebody who did sin, somebody who lived in unrighteousness, which is every person in this room. He's saying, even those that did it, even the person who, 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 there's no way that could be justified by any other means, he's saying, you now can be declared not guilty and therefore First of all, you are freed from the punishment of your sin because now you're not guilty. But here's the great part. You're also freed from the guilt and from the shame that now that you are not guilty, you don't have to walk in the same guilt. You don't have to live with that shame any longer because you are declared by God not guilty. And you're treated as if you had never sinned in the first place. In fact, I've heard someone say that a great way to understand and remember the meaning of the word justified is it means that when you're justified, it means that it's just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd justified. It's a great way to remember it. Jesus really indeed is the Savior everyone needs. And Paul then concluded the sermon with a warning Using language from, from Habakkuk 1.15, or excuse me, 1.5. He said this, and he's quoting from, from, from Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however you want to say it. I've heard it both ways. We're probably both saying it the wrong way. <laughs> he said, look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. He's, he's saying, listen, I want you that are hearing this, to be on your guard. Because if you reject the fulfillment of the prophecy in Jesus' death and resurrection, then an even greater judgment is going to come upon you than those uh, who rebelled against God in the days of Habakkuk. So he finishes the sermon. And after the sermon, at first the response is pretty good. It's very positive in the beginning. Let's read what happened. We'll pick it up in verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. They said, hey, that was really good. If you're going to be in town next week, uh, how about you come and preach again? That was good. We like that, Paul. And when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism 
followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. By the way, the phrase where it says he urged them to continue in the grace of God tells us that they had accepted what Paul had said. They are now believers, and, he's, and they're encouraging, listen, you've received this grace. Now you need to continue in this grace. Verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now, Luke is probably using hyperbole there. Everybody knows what, you know what hyperbole is? That's a, that's a word that's used. It just means an exaggeration to make a point. A great, a great example of this. Anybody here ever said something like, man, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. You ever said something like that? Anybody feeling that way right now? Okay. <laughs> well, she's got reason to. So when you say that, you're not literally saying, I could eat a horse. What you're saying is, my appetite is enormous right now, and you're exaggerating to make the point that you're not just a little hungry, you are really hungry. Right, Gina? <laughs> Always. So, so that's what hyperbole is, exaggerating to make the point. You know, a city of 50,000 people... Almost all the whole city didn't show up. But what he's doing there is he's, he's using hyper, hyperbole to, to make a point to help us understand that it was a, an enormous crowd that showed up the next week. Okay? Verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Boy, this sounds familiar. Same song, next verse. Every time this happens, this is what happened to, to Peter and the other apostles in Jerusalem. They got jealous there because people started following them. They were filled with je- jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. So after the sermon, many of the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, they followed Paul and Barnabas. You know, they're trying to leave church and everybody's, everybody has to talk with Paul and Barnabas. They're just following him down the road. And all that day, now remember, you know, there's a whole week until the next Sabbath. So all that day and, the, and during the week, the apostles... They were busy with individuals and groups as they urged them to hold fast to the grace of God. And, and these pagan God-fearers had, had scattered to their homes and they heard this gospel and many of them had responded because he, they were being urged to continue in the grace of God. And, and here they are, they're hearing this and they can scarcely dare to believe that faith in Jesus could bring immediate forgiveness and joy of the Lord And all this without the necessity of circumcision and without the rigors of trying to follow the Jewish law. And all this, they heard this, and they spread the news like wildfire. This was such good news to them because they wanted to follow the God of Israel. They wanted to follow the one true God. But what was standing in the way was all of the requirements of the law. They, how are we going to get there? And, and the law was never meant to save mankind. You can read that, about that in Hebrews. The law was given to help us understand that we are sinful and we cannot save ourselves. And so they hear this good news and they're so excited. This, they just they fall so in love with Jesus. They're so excited about what he's doing. That the news spreads like wildfire in the marketplace, in the law courts, in the slave barracks of the Tribune's mansion. The word went round that these traveling preachers had a message that, that finally made some sense out of life. That finally brought some fulfillment, finally brought peace finally did something, gave something to them. They, because uh, Luke doesn't tell us what happens every time somebody gets saved, but we do know that he makes it clear that every time somebody got saved, they were baptized in water and baptized in the Holy Spirit. So now they're telling everybody, man, I have found something. We, we have heard about this Jesus. We have been filled with the power of God. My life is different. And they're telling everybody. And all week long, this is going on. And Paul and Barnabas... The next week on Sabbath, which is Saturday, they get, you know, I can just picture them getting up. They're ready. Well, let's go over to the synagogue. They asked us if we'd speak again, so let's head over there. This is going to be great. Spend some time praying. I'm excited about what God laid in my heart. And they get there, and they find this enormous crowd with Gentiles outnumbering the Jews. Every seat was filled. 
I mean, imagine it, you know, if it happened here in this church, you, you, you show up and, and, and every place, there's no place left in, in the pews and people are standing up, lined around the walls and they're, they're out there and the, and, the, and the door's propped open and the air conditioner's running like crazy because you can't close the doors and they're lined up outside and, and, and we got all the windows open and there are people, you know, that are, that are crowding up to every window and they're, I mean, the crowd is so big and they're all just pressing in, they want to hear what's going on, they're, you know, Veterans are showing up with their families, people who are there uh, as part of the Roman army. And there are Greek shopkeepers showing up. And there are Phrygian slaves that are there were very common in the area. And they all stood and pressed about the door and, and down the narrow street and out into the city, city square. But in the synagogue, the service never began. Because instead of warmly welcoming the largest congregation of their time, never seen a crowd like this, the rabbi and the elders and the leading Jews, instead of being overwhelmed and excited, were furious. They were furious. Part of it was their influence is going to be lost. Another way to say it is their power is going to be lost. You know, it's still the same way in churches today. When there's conflict, when there's a church split, it always boils down to power and control. I don't care what the issue is. Whatever the issue is, that's not the issue. Always boils down to it. And here it is again. They resented the response to Paul's message. You know, and and you know, it's easy. It's easy when you're in, in ministry. It's easy when you do something and you have limited success and then another person comes in and, and all of a sudden everything just explodes. It's really easy to look at them and start getting a little jealous and say, well, what are they doing that I didn't do? But they resented it. What they had received respectfully the previous week, now they repudiated The people who had flocked in to learn about the power and love of Jesus now heard his claims dismissed. They heard his character slandered and they heard his messengers covered with abuse. But you know what? Paul was not surprised. He wasn't shocked by that. After all, they only said what he had once said. He was once in their shoes. You know, he didn't mind being spattered with verbal filth. He could stomach even the blasphemies hurled at his Lord. How, you know, he could, he could understand where they're coming from. He understood all those things. However, he was not going to be muzzled. Gentiles and Jews wanted to hear the message. And no blind, self-satisfied Jewish elder was going to get in the way. And so the two missionaries stood up boldly. Now this is bold because they risked being whipped for opposing lawful authority. And they stood up boldly and they answered back in in verse 46, we had to speak the word of God to you first since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles, speaking to the Jews there. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. And he goes back to to a quote from the Old Testament and reminds them why the Jews were God's chosen people. This is what he's trying to do. He's trying to help them understand You're missing the point. It's not about that you are God's chosen people and that makes you better than everybody else. He said, you're missing why you were chosen by God. He said, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And they strode out of that synagogue followed by all the Gentiles who were Patently delighted. No circumcision? Woohoo! And followed by many of the Jews. I can just see it as they made their way out through that crowd and the, and, and the crowd just kind of parted and made way for, way for them as they, as they walked out into the public square and they stood out there and Paul preached. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. And I want to say this. I don't have this in my notes, but uh, there, there were, in that region, 
there was a specific goddess and the name just left me that was, that was uh, worshipped in that region, a false god, an idol. But because it was a goddess, uh, there, there were many women had a great deal of influence in the city. So it was a little different than what it was in other places around the globe during those days. And so the fact that these were, these were Gentile women who had great influence but who were God-fearing. In other words, they hadn't gone through the process of being baptized and being full proselytes to the, Jewish, Jew, to the uh, Jewish belief. Uh, but they were trying to, they were interested in following the God, the God of Israel. And so they're being influenced by the Jewish leaders and their influence, they get them worked up and it says, uh, 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 let's keep reading it. But the, they uh, incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the, their region. So they, speaking of Paul and Barnabas, they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So these unbelieving Jews, they incite the God-fearing women of high standing in society and the chief men of the city government. And by these means, they stirred up persecution of Paul and Barnabas to the point that they were thrown out of the district. Uh, In response to this, Paul and Barnabas simply shook the dust off their feet as a testimony against this. Now, Jews did this to symbolize separating themselves from uncleanness, leaving behind even the dust of of people that are rejecting God. And then they went on to Iconium, a a Phrygian city in the southern part of the Roman province of Galatia. But I love the, the last verse we read, verse 52. In spite of all this... Paul and Barnabas, who has just preached the gospel, they just got saved, they, and they could see this opposition, and they could be fearful of this, they could be sad, but it says, in spite of this, the new disciples were filled with joy and, and with the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I want to I close with, with this. You know, when Paul and Barnabas entered Pisidian Antioch, What they found there was a city starved for the word of God. The city had at least one synagogue and was perhaps, you know, dotted with several more given the large Jewish population. We don't know, but there was certainly one large one. These places of worship had apparently attracted a significant number of Gentile proselytes and God-fearers. But you know what? For all of its religion, the, the entire city lacked what it needed most, and that was forgiveness of sin. And Paul told the people of Antioch something that they had never heard. We read it in verse 39. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Just, here's the thing we need to understand. Justification by grace through faith was not a new message. It was not a new teaching in the New Testament. This reflects the character of God throughout the, the history of the world. It's always been the message of salvation. Let me, let me read to you what the prophet Isaiah wrote uh, about this. Isaiah 55 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. He says, why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Verse 6, he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call up you upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And this is what he said. This is what I want you to see. This is not a New Testament, new thing that's going about. This is the heart of God all along because he says, he says, when you do that, he says, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. You know, to the starving people of Antioch, Paul and Barnabas had brought a feast. Strangely, though, the, the people gave a mixed response to the offer of spiritual, spiritually nourishing food. Some rejoiced and ate, but there were many who rejected and starved. And how they responded to this teaches us two things about evangelism, about sharing our faith. And I'm going to try to explain this first one because it may sound a little harsh at first. First, when there's a famine in the land... 
feed the hungry and ignore the rest. You say ignore, that's just, maybe that's the wrong word. That may sound harsh, but, but you know, when there's a job to do, you've got to stay focused. Paul and Barnabas devoted their time to preaching to those who were hungry for the tooth, truth. They did not... They did not spend their time trying to argue the, with the Jews and saying, oh, no, you need to listen. We told you. And, and they, you know what? I have never seen anybody ever argued to faith in Christ. That doesn't mean that you don't need to study. It means you, you need to know the truth and you need to have an answer when people ask questions. But the bottom line is there are some who are hungry and some that refuse to, eat, to sit at the feast that the, the Lord sets in front of them. And while you pray for them and while you share Jesus whenever you have an opportunity, those are not the ones that you, that, you know, we need to, we need, there are people around you that are hungry for the Lord and you need to pour yourself into those people. That's what I'm trying to say. What Paul and Barnabas, you know, when the synagogue leader shut them down, they said, all right, we'll go to the Gentiles. They're hungry, I'll go to them. And when the town became inhospitable, they shook the dust from their feet and went down the road to find some other people who were hungry. So, so go to those that are hungry. Because God has got them to a place where they're ready to respond. Now, does that, mean, that doesn't mean that you completely, uh, when I say ignore the rest, I don't mean that you ignore them like, like you never give them any attention because what you're doing with them oftentimes is you're planting the seeds. And so you plant the seeds when you, can, when you can. But understand this, if you're the seed planter, there's a good chance you're not the harvester. And, and we just got to be satisfied with whatever the Lord gives us to do. And so if I'm planting seeds, you know, I mean, I know of missionaries that went decades before they saw anybody get saved. Well, why is that? That's because for decades they were planting seeds. They might have seen somebody get saved very late in their ministry, but it was the next missionary who came into, this, into the nation that really got to be part of the harvest. Here's the second, second principle. And maybe this, is really, this really explains the first one, what I was trying to say. You can't feed people who don't want to eat. Now, my mother-in-law does not believe that. <laughs> because if you go there, she's going to have something to give you to eat. And, you know, and she's not going to be happy until somebody eats something. But the, the truth is, you know, all joking aside, you, you can't feed people who don't want to eat. Some, someone who maybe their heart has grown so hard and so cold and they, they have rejected Christ to such to, to very, you know, a high degree. You, you can't force Jesus on them. You can show them Jesus. You can tell them about Jesus. But you know what? Um, I, guess, I guess put it this way. Paul and Silas, they understood and they carried with them the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel where it had never been heard before. That's what they were doing. But they did not take on the responsibility for how people responded. You, you can't make anybody. I wish, I wish we could. I tell you what, there have been so many sermons I've preached in my life that I wished I could reach out and grab people by the throat and make them do what I was preaching because <laughs> I know how good it would be for them, you know? Of course, that's not very Christ-like, you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, did you get saved? Yeah, I had to. Preacher was going to beat me up, <laughs> you know? You can't, you can't make anybody. You're not in control of the response. You, all you can do is pray, and all you can do is fight for them spiritually in, in, the, in the battle for their soul. And all you can do is, 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 is tell them about Jesus and live Jesus in front of them. You can set that example out there. You can do all of these things, but you cannot make anybody choose the right path. I wish we could. But even the Holy Spirit respects the free will of man. So I say that tonight. You know, the, the fact was, Paul and Barnabas allowed that to give them courage in the face of the unknown. And it gave them resilience in response to the opposition because they said to themselves, 
my job is not to make them respond. My job is to give them the truth and let the Holy Spirit use that and they have to make their own choice. And I guess that's what I want to close with. Is that, you know, the people that you know, that you love, people that you're sharing Christ with, people that you're planting seeds with, you keep praying. You pray as hard as you can for them. You keep talking about Jesus because you talk about what you love and you love Jesus. So you keep talking about him. You keep offering the gospel to them. You keep living it out in front of them. And, and when you fail, which you will, everybody here understands you're going to make mistakes. You're going to say things. You're going to uh, let a, a, a word that's been unguarded escape from your mouth. And, and you all have been there in that moment where your word comes out. And as it's coming out, you're like, no, come back here. Right? It's going to happen. And in that moment, you, what do you do? You do what a, what a follower of Christ would do. You own up to it and say, I was wrong. Please forgive me. I, 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 I should never have said that. I was absolutely wrong. I own up to it. It's my responsibility. And in that, they see something real. But with all of that, don't carry the weight of thinking that somehow you have to make them respond because you can't. You can't. You can't. So release that to the Lord. You keep praying. You keep believing God for miracles in their life because he's working on them even if you can't see it. If you're praying, he's working on them. I guarantee that. And you leave that to him and watch what he'll do. But don't carry the responsibility of trying to make people make the right choice. Because that'll wear, that'll, that'll drag you down. Instead, live with the courage of saying, I don't have to make the choice, but I do have to make the presentation. So I'm going to be, I'm going to walk in courage. I'm going to make the presentation of the gospel boldly. And I'm going to be resilient in response because I understand not everybody's going to respond. But I'm not going to let that knock me down. I'm going to say, well, I'm going to pray for them and I hope one day they'll respond, but it's not going to change what I'm doing. I'm going to keep proclaiming. I'm going to keep talking about Jesus. I'm going to keep living for him. And I'm going to keep telling people about the, the forgiveness of sin that's available, the new life that he offers. And I'm going to live with that. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the encouragement of your word.